What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney David Epstein is the author of the book Range Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World and the New York Times bestseller The Sports Gene He has master's degrees in environmental science and journalism and has worked as an investigative reporter for ProPublica and a senior writer for Sports Illustrated. On this episode, David uncovers some of the myths behind elite performance. This episode is certainly going to have you thinking about things through a different lens. Hey guys, it's Sean and I have a very exciting announcement for you. In a few weeks, there will be some other people behind this microphone guest hosting the show. They will be the brothers behind Kitu Super Coffee. For the longtime listeners, you guys are familiar with them. The DeSicos actually were on episode 53. You guys can submit your questions to them and actually win some incredible prizes, both from Super Coffee and also MCT Bar. If you guys want to submit your questions, feel free to shoot us an email, info at whatgotyouthere.com. Or you can tweet at us, hit us up on Instagram, What Got You There podcast, or at Drink Super Co. I'm very excited for these guys to grab the microphone. So if you have questions, please send them in and get a chance to win some awesome prizes. Hey guys, I want to tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're going to receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. CrossFit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor, head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. David Epstein, how are we doing today? 
Doing very well, thanks. I am very much looking forward to this conversation. Your work is something I've admired, I've been a fan of, but it's been about a month now since your newest book, Range, has come out. How's the past month been? Uh, crazier than I expected. Um, got the new book and a newborn. <laughs> um, and uh, this book got out of the gate faster than the last one. Um, so my head's spinning a little bit. Well, congratulations on the newborn. What do you attribute? You said that the new book came out of the gates a bit faster than your first one. Why do you think that is? Um, it's a good question. I, I think my imprint put more sort of uh, specific push behind it this time around, uh, Riverhead. I also think because of my last book, I guess maybe I have some some built-in audience who'd been waiting and, you know, it's six years between books, so maybe they've been looking out for it. Um and then just, you know, sometimes you just got to get lucky with some of the some of the marketing push. I mean, I left my my day job to finish the book. And so I had more time to pitch myself to a lot of places. And so I think maybe that um, that helped. So I, I sort of wrote more articles and adaptations and essays and things like that. And, and you know, then just then just some uh, just some luck. Was there anyone or any publicity the book got that just really humbled you? You were very excited to hear that they've read the book and enjoyed it. Um, there's been a lot of that going on actually. Um, I mean, one humbling thing I'd say the New York times review, um, you know, which had highlighted points that, um, the reviewer really liked and, and also some productive critique I thought was a reviewer who's a writer. I really respect, I don't know him personally, um, respect him from afar and have noticed that he's a very, um, you know, a very tough reviewer. And so when I first saw his name on the review before reading it, I was like, you know, my stomach sank a little bit, even even though I love his writing. Um, so I was really happy to get a really positive review from a reviewer who, uh, whose work I admire, his name Jim Holt, and um, who who is often, you know, a, a very tough but thorough and honest critic. Yeah, no, it's just been funny and intriguing to see the number of, of extremely qualified and impressive people out there reading your book. So congratulations about that. One thing I'm interested that you mentioned is just leaving your day job and having the self-confidence to, to go full on with the book. What was that like? Um, I don't know if it's self-confidence, <laughs> but I realized I wasn't going to get it done if I didn't do it. I mean, my first book sort of overlapped more with my day job, so that was a little more feasible. Um, and honestly, it was difficult because I still get introduced as being a writer at Sports Illustrated sometimes, and I haven't been there for six years. And that's because the sports gene, my first book, came out right when I was leaving Sports Illustrated to go to a small, you know, at the time, small investigative nonprofit called ProPublica. And suddenly my identity became this like sports science guy in a more strong way than it had ever been before. Meanwhile, I was moving. And so in the last couple of years, I've sort of pulled up all of what I would call my identity anchors. In many cases, I moved cities. Um, I, I left one job for another and then left that job too. Uh, you know, I, I took on a book project that was a very different one for me, have no day job for the first time in a long time. I mean, it's just sort of everything... Uh, changing. And that's that's definitely been just, it's just sort of a, an identity challenge, right? Because work is really a part of our identity. So not having a day job, I'm assuming that your routine, that being morning routine, and then even how you structure your day, has that changed much for you? Yeah, I, I got to say, I'm not a big, I'm not real big for routines, honestly, in a lot of ways. And maybe that sounds bad. I know like productive people are usually like really big on routines. And well, one of the reasons maybe I'm not is while well, I'm writing the book, basically I'll work all the time. <laughs> so that's probably not that's probably why I don't have a routine. So it it didn't change that much because 
in my jobs, I had a lot of work autonomy anyway, both at, at Sports Illustrated as I sort of rose up the ranks. And then at ProPublica, I had a ton of work autonomy. So I was sort of largely on my own time anyway. Um, but I definitely on my own spent more time like working after midnight until I had a newborn, <laughs> until we had a baby. <laughs> yeah, no, I think the, the hyper cliche thing is to have that ultra structured day. And I actually asked the question because I'd love hearing about different ideas in different ways that people do things that works well for them. Because I know both myself and then listeners, they'll, they'll hear something and it resonates with them. So is there anything you even do that's unstructured, that's just intriguing or interesting throughout your day? Oh, I mean, a ton of what I do is unstructured. Between, between projects, so like I've read these, it's funny, as I, I came across quotes by uh, Christopher Nolan, a director whose work I admire, and also Eric Larson, a, a nonfiction writer whose work I admire. And they both had quotes that were to the effect of, well, between projects, I just need to read a lot with with no apparent purpose. And that's how I come across my next project. And that's true for me too, even once I have my project. So like one of the things someone who reads range would probably notice is that it's pretty expansive. Like the, the topics covered are, are sort of all over the map and there's, uh, you know, you can, whether you like it or not, you can probably tell that like a lot of work went into it across a lot of different domains. And when I'm doing that, a huge amount of what I'm doing is like the first year of book reporting. Basically, I try to read 10 scientific journal articles a day, every day for a year. I don't even write. And in doing that, most of those things are never going to end up anywhere near the book because most of them aren't that relevant. But I don't know that until I sort of dive in and do it. So I'll like, when I was in New York, I would go to these, I had an alumni reading card at the Columbia Library and there were four computers that were simultaneously logged into every scientific journal the university had access to. And the citations, so the references in each article were hyperlinked. So you could just jump from one to another. And I would just go there when the library opened and stay, you know, till it closed, basically doing that, jumping from one article to another all day and just sort of following my curiosity. And that's incredibly inefficient, like, and, and very unstructured. And, and I used to really chide myself for being so inefficient because I'm not the most efficient person. Um, but I also think that that's kind of how I find things that other people aren't paying attention to and, and make some connections that other people aren't making. Maybe I'm just self-justifying, you know, my own inefficiency, but I've, I've come to think that it's sort of part of the process, you know, and, and partly because of the research that went into range on like scientific breakthroughs was like, you actually have to cultivate this inefficiency because you often can't tell what you're looking for ahead of time. So I have a lot of like unstructured search time. It's very obvious the amount of work that that went into range. So I really do appreciate that and thankful that you spent that amount of time. When you're sitting there reading all of these, do you even get up for breaks or do you just sit there straight through? Typically, I would sit there straight through. And I, I, I hesitate to say that because I don't necessarily recommend that. Like, I think it's a better, you know, for... It's good to have physical activity, first of all. But sometimes if I was going to that to the library, like that's what I was there to do for that day. And so that's what I was going to do. And once I get like down the rabbit hole and I want to like see the next paper and the next paper, and then it's like can kind of like miss meals without even realizing it. Are you almost entering that flow state? I don't know if it's, a, you know, it's. It's more of like a rabid curiosity state, I would say. <laughs> but but I do I do definitely have a propensity, like when I'm focused on something, like to not realize how much time is passing. And so I, I think there are some similarities with the flow state for sure. So you mentioned that you're not even writing during this year process. Are you taking notes or anything along those lines while reading these? Enormous amount of notes. So I have this thing I call a master thought list, which is basically a document where, um, as I come across things that are interesting. 
and and or relevant, sometimes just interesting because I'll just keep notes on them for my own for myself later. But I'll I'll put you know maybe I'll excerpt some lines or and put the citation or a link if there's a link available to whatever this source was and what I thought was interesting about it. And as these you know, these these research articles sort of start to coalesce around a certain topic. I'll start moving things toward each other on that master thought list. And when there's like sort of a critical mass, then I'll give them what I call a tag, which basically just in a different color. This is on a, you know, on a pages document or like a Word document basically. Um, and the tag will be like, what is the theme of that that group of information, that group of notes? And then I'll write a bunch of words that I think I would search for, like if I wanted to word search to find those things again. Um and then over time, these different groups or tags will I'll start like arranging them so that the the related ones are are closer to each other. And this sort of becomes this like living outline. But the the problem and and I and it's it makes all these like sources word searchable for me because I'm like typing in words, you know, that I'll search if I want to find this paper again. Um, I guess the the problem is like it ended up being seventy thousand words long, so it can get pretty unwieldy. But but as long as you're good with putting in the words that you would search, it's really helpful for finding that stuff. Because if I were just reading it and trying to hold it in my head, like no chance whatsoever, you know. How long have you been doing a, a process like this or similar? Um, I started with my first book and I didn't even, I didn't even like codify it that same way in my first book. I only realized, and I did title the document like Master Thought List, but I, I didn't think of it as like a system. It was just sort of where I was keeping track of sources like when I was well out from actually writing. Um, and it also makes the, you know, your citations at the end of the book way easier because now you've got like the citations written down already. <laughs> um, and so this time around, I realized that was something helpful for me and that the search for the, in the book was going to be even more expansive. So this time I sort of did it a little more proactively. Last time it kind of evolved partway through the book because I was having trouble keeping track of so many sources. So it came out of necessity. And then I sort of decided to to implement it more proactively this time. Do you do anything similar when you're not even reading these specific journals? Even like if you're just reading or, or coming or walking the streets and see something interesting, do you have a similar process? Yeah, yeah, sort of. I actually have, now I have a master thought list. I call it master thought list generally, which is the title <laughs> of the document. It's just like interesting. Yeah, no, I, I keep notes like all over the place. This this author I've gotten into recently, a fiction author named Rachel Ingalls, I read that she would carry around a bag and like have little pieces of paper and she would just like write notes and drop them in the bag. So that that's also not very efficient. But no, I'm constantly taking notes like in the, you know, in the notes app of my phone in all over every in my computer, like on pieces of paper. The, the, and if it's an electronic notes, what I'll try to do, I mean, I take an enormous number of notes in a Kindle too. So like when I'm prepping for um, interviews, I'll, you know, I'll read some relevant books on Kindle, take notes in there, and then I'll export them. And then I'll use that to like arrange questions and things like that. So um, I have notes all over the place. And one of my own, the only strategy, like without Searchlight on the Mac, I would be like dead. I use it like a thousand times a day um, because basically what I try to do all over the place is write in words that I think I would search if I were trying to find certain things. And then I rely on Searchlight to help me find them. So yeah, I've got notes all all over the place. And I just try to, whether it's a in a, in a document, you know, or... Um, in the document title or in the text, whatever, try to put some like unique words that I think I would look for. 
Thank you for that tip. I need to start implementing that because like you mentioned a few minutes ago, trying to keep all this in your head is almost impossible. And I feel like I occasionally reach those breaking points. That's something I'm certainly going to have to do. But but I want to dive into the books. And I first discovered you with the initial book that you mentioned, The Sports Gene. But I need to hear more about the new book, Range, While Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. So how did the idea for Range even come to be? Well, it's sort of two main things. First was after the sports gene, I got invited to this conference called the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. Um, And it's kind of like an NBA job fair at this point for data analytics people. And um, I was invited there to debate Malcolm Gladwell. Um, So this debate's on YouTube. You can can see it up there, 10,000 hours versus the sports gene is how it's framed. And I'd never met him before. And, you know, he's obviously an extremely clever guy. And... I didn't want to get crushed on stage. <laughs> um, and so I tried to anticipate what he might argue. And, you know, he'd written, this was specifically about, this was a sports conference, so specifically about sports. And he'd written about, you know, the importance of early specialization. Um, and so I, I knew he was going to argue that this, like the biggest advantage you could have in development was early specialization and deliberate practice. And so, you know, I said, okay, well, if that's the hypothesis, then I'll go look at uh the scientific literature on this point. And it turned out that in, in most sports, what scientists had found was that athletes who go on to become elite have what they call a sampling period, where they play a wide variety of sports. Um, they learn these broader skills. They learn about their own interests. They learn about their own abilities. And they delay specializing until later than their peers. And so later than their peers who plateau at lower levels. And so I brought that up. I said, if this is your hypothesis and this is the data, like these things can't fit together. Um, and after we came off stage, he sort of said, you know what you got me on was that, that late specialization stuff. I don't really know, you know, that was a good, good point. You should think about writing more about that. And I was so not ready to write another book. Like I, there's a reason there were six years between books. Um, but he and I became running buddies and we we're both big track nerds and we would talk about it on our own time. And I sort of filed it in the back of my head. And then like two years later, I was invited to talk to a group of military veterans who were given scholarships by the Pat Tillman Foundation um, to aid their career changes, basically. And one of my friends had, had gotten one of these scholarships. And so I go to talk to this small group and I'm like, all right, well, I'll talk about late specialization in sports because maybe that's sort of like in some ways, you know, analogous to career changing sort of. And, but I better get a little something else. So I looked for a little more research outside of sports and like tacked it on as like the last five minutes of a talk, you know? And um, they were so enthusiastic about it. Like they wanted to follow up, you know, this ex-Navy SEAL was like, who was in grad school at Harvard and Dartmouth at the same time was telling me how relieved he was, you know? And I'm like, are you serious, man? Like you're like exude excellence in everything you do. And you're like concerned about being behind. And so the conversations I'd had with Malcolm sort of came back to my head. And I said, okay, this audience just saw mostly what I talked about as sports. They saw it as like an analogy for their work lives. So maybe I should consider a project where I see it as an analogy for the rest of the work world and just start with sports and use that as the jumping off point for to talk about, you know, early and late specialization and generalization in the wider world. And that is in fact you know, the book, it starts with sports, but just uses that as a jumping off point to go to the rest of the world. How far along in this process was it, you know what, I'm going to make this into a book as opposed to even just an an article, because like you mentioned, there's a reason it took six years. This is a huge undertaking. When was that decision made? 
I mean, it was three years before I even thought about writing another book, right? My my then agent after the sports gene was kind of more of a surprise success, um, you know, encouraged me to sign up for another book right away because, obvi- you know, for obvious reasons, that's that's when you're hot and you can get a good contract and everything. Um, but I said no. And he said, well, just don't let it be another five years before you have another book out. And it's been six um, because I, I just... I like to go do, I, I had other skills I wanted to learn. I left Sports Illustrated to go to ProPublica because I wanted to learn some new things and learn some new skills. I went there and I was reporting about drug cartels and, you know, bad medical practices. And I, and I wanted to diversify my skill set. So I really, before three years, I wasn't even like ready to think about it, honestly. Um, and so I, I just sort of would slowly like do a little research in the background um, until I sort of felt recovered enough to do another book. And also got interested in enough that I wanted to dive into it in more domains and realized I couldn't do that at the same time as having my day job. So the first, at, at first they overlapped me starting to research the book and my day job, but sort of for the last year, I realized I wasn't going to be able to finish if I, if I had both. So, so it was a matter of both my personal recovery and as I dove into the topic, um, just finding that there was more than I expected. Uh, you know, more, 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 fortunately, like more researchers, had had taken on these questions than I expected. So I started to realize there was there was a wealth of stuff there. And instead of having too little, the problem would be, you know, figuring out what not to include in the book. How was it doing something that was almost all-encompassing for your life, writing that first book, putting it on the back burner and then coming back to it a number of years later? I'm just trying to think of my own life if there's something similar that I've done and I don't think there is. How how does that go? You mean book writing in general? Um like having gone from one book and then just like putting that aside and... Yeah, almost quitting cold turkey on it and then restarting that all over again. How is that? Yeah, well, I mean, it stayed it stayed a part of my life just in terms of... It, it lived a long life in terms of people being interested in it. So, but but for me, it was good. It's like, it's like intervals, you know? I needed a break between and I wanted to go learn different skills. And so, um, you know, by the time... By the time anyone reads one of my books... I've been done with it for a while and I'm already very much in the headspace of a beginner at something else by that point or not even knowing what I'm doing. Um, and so, so it's sort of interesting. I mean, by the time I'm done with the book, I, I want to be done with the book. <laughs> so it's, so it's sort of a relief and I want to go off and do something else. And I'm very oriented toward, um, like constantly doing different things and, and, and trying to learn different skills. So I didn't, I don't find that so hard. I, I find doing the book harder than not, than the period of not doing the book. <laughs> It's funny you mentioned you've been done with the book. I was actually nervous for this interview because at this point, I I know you were so exhausted with the book and I knew we were trying to do this one earlier. How is it promoting the book? I know you have to hit on the same things over and over again. Does that get really tiring as an author? I mean, in a way it does, but also, you know, it's rarely exactly the same. And when people have read it, then it's like never the same. Like there's some, I mean, there's like a chapter in the book I've I've still been asked about like maybe once, you know, because people... So, so there's still like lots of new stuff. And when I talk to people, I get to hear what resonated with them. And sometimes they'll share their stories. You know, why did they contact me or why are they interested in me? Maybe it's because something resonated with them or maybe it's because they want to criticize something. But either way, that's like great learning for me. And, and I got to be honest, like with both books, once I'm like so, you know, in my own head for so long that when it comes out, I have no idea what's going to resonate with people. You don't really know if you hit it out of the ballpark or missed the ballpark entirely. <laughs> and so you're sort of waiting for that initial feedback. And 
you know, the things that I predict would resonate with people are not always necessarily those things. So getting that feedback is like incredibly useful and really interesting. And I, I love when it prompts other people to share their stories with me. So there's definitely overlap in things you talk about, but there's also a lot of different stuff at this stage. I mean, it's only been out a month, so. How did you initially become a writer? Um, that is a good question. So I was living in a tent in the Arctic when I decided for sure to become a writer um, because I was a grad student in geology and for a variety of reasons. Well, one, that was getting way too narrow um, for me, for my taste. But the other thing was, and this is just disclaimer, there's like a sad tinge to this story. Um, I had had a, a friend and track training partner who dropped dead at the end of a race. Um, I wrote about him in the sports gene. And, you know, he was one of the top runners in his event in his age group in the country. And I couldn't understand why that would happen to someone at that age. And our local newspaper said, oh, heart attack. And I'm like, what does that even mean for someone in this state of health at this age? And eventually I had his family sign a waiver allowing me to gather up his medical records. And I did that and it turned out he had died of this disease that didn't get diagnosed. It's caused by a single gene mutation. And that got me interested in genetics. And, you know, I realized as I learned more about this, that that we could at no cost save uh, some people from this. Not everyone, but but some and a substantial number of people. And over time, I decided I wanted to merge my interests, you know, rather than being a scientist, I wanted to merge my interests in sports and science and do something I thought was valuable, which was write about sudden cardiac death in athletes for the general public. Um, and not for people like me, you know, who are spending their disposable income on Scientific American or whatever. And so that that sort of became my my plan for a little while. And so I decided I had to get into journalism. So I got in any way I could, you know, through a series of weird jobs and eventually landed at Sports Illustrated as a temp fact checker where um, my suddenly, my science skills, where I was a very ordinary scientist, became extraordinary at a sports magazine. So I went from temp fact checker to senior writer um, pretty rapidly. And my, my first cover story was indeed about sudden cardiac death in athletes. So it was really that particular issue and also learning about myself that becoming a scientist probably wasn't the right thing. Sort of these things sort of came together in a way that that set us, you know, this goal of writing about sudden cardiac death in athletes for a for a very wide audience, not for like a medical audience. You mentioned starting as a temp fact checker for Sports Illustrated. Clearly, you had to have been a pretty good writer at the time. Am I correct there? Um, I mean, pretty good would probably be the extent of it. I think so. I mean, I had been, I had had a previous job in journalism. So I left a full-time job at a startup, a journalism startup to become a temp fact checker because again, I wanted to get my foot in the door and write about sudden cardiac death and athletes. So I think I was, I think I was a, a competent like news writer at that point. I wouldn't have stood a chance of trying to write a book at that point, but I was a competent news writer. And I was, I was a pretty good reporter because between like, um, some of the ways of thinking I learned from science and then my first job I could get was starting at midnight and going to the morning for a New York City tabloid because that was like the only job I could get. Um, nothing happy that's going in New York City tabloid happens between midnight and 10 a.m., believe me. Um, <laughs> but that really taught me certain other reporting skills, you know, street reporting and all these things. And then I went to this startup that was writing about higher ed and, 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 so, and you know, I was learning how to use documents and all these. So I had some, I had some reporting skills that... Some other, a lot of other people at Sports Illustrated didn't have. So probably at the time, I was more sort of um, 
it was these these reporting skills I had that that were more rare at Sports Illustrated than writing. Where you know Sports Illustrated's full of great writers. Yeah, I'm prying on this because I feel like this is where the gold in people lie. And you you hear about a lot of these established titans of business or, or athletes, and it's these times that they kind of gloss over. And I'm not even sure they know why they were able to get this next job. But it's those little things that you might have picked up or were there even other things you did differently at the time that just helped separate you and, and help launch your career for SI? I mean, the science background was enormous. So the, so the the things I came in with were a science background and a crime reporting background and those both turned out to be huge. So the the literal first assignment I got, like I get there and I'm like fact checking TV listing. You know, for someone who's like 6 years younger than me and and is a full-time job and I'm a temp fact checker. Um and then the first assignment I get, I remember this backup kicker at the University of Northern Colorado stabbed the starter in his kicking leg to try to take his job. He you know, the story was he'd been like driven crazy to get the job by his mother who, whatever, that's not important. But, you know, one editor I remember comes into like the, the area of the, of the office, you know, where I was and said, doesn't, didn't, don't you have some crime reporting experience? And I'm like, yes. It's like, yo, we got this story. Would you, you know, what do you think? And I'm like, and I, and I had to go to Wyoming. So this was like this New York city scene where I like run out of the building. This is my first chance to, you know, contribute not as a fact checker. I like run out of the building, give a cabbie like a hundred bucks. And I'm like, take me to our apartment. If you stay there for five minutes, then take me to the airport, you know, I'll give you another hundred bucks. And, you know, I go, I, the only thing I can get is a flight to Denver. So I rent a car there and drive to Wyoming and all this. And then it's, so all of a sudden I'm there and it's like totally familiar kind of crime reporting that I'm used to. And so I do a good job on that and they extend my temp gig. And then, you know, steroid stuff starts happening. And now I can bring my science background to, because I can, you know, People didn't know a lot about these drugs, and so I can use my science background to do reporting on these drugs and how they work and all these sorts of things. And that's a mix of crime and science and performance-enhancing drugs. So suddenly they start to realize I'm contributing to these sorts of things that where they don't have a lot of people, right? Like there's like 50 people in line to be the next NFL beat reporter, right? But if you have, you can do some of the science and some of the crime, then there's like, you're only competing against yourself. So I was on my own turf. And so I think they started realizing I was I was pretty useful in those things. Um, and so they kept extending the temp gig, extending the temp gig. And then they brought me on full time, you know, and then I co-wrote the story that outed Alex Rodriguez for steroid use. And then I was like, got moved, you know, moved up pretty quick. Were you able to articulate the range you had and specialty amongst these different things at the time? Or does that come out when, when prepping for the book range? I realized in retrospect that, no, I mean, when I was there and I was just trying to catch on, I did realize that there were tons of science and crime um, issues that intersect with sports that, you know, most of the writers didn't really want to cover. And so just in the interest of, okay, how can I try to get from fact-checking to writing? Um, you know, picking up some of those issues, realizing that I had some of these skills that other people there didn't have. So I, I did realize that um, pretty quickly, but it wasn't until much later in retrospect where, you know, I kind of saw that thread in my whole career where it was always this like odd background that I would bring into some place. It's like these like arbitrage opportunities, right? You take some skills that are ordinary when you're in an area where everybody has them and you take them to this other place where nobody has them and suddenly you look brilliant, you know? But really it's just that you just you just brought new skills to the same old problems. And so I did start to realize it, but just just in the way that I was like, well, how can I get to write something that somebody else isn't already picking off here? And it was very clear to me that 
you know, that was by using these unique background skills that I had. Was there an article for SI that you think back to the most? Gosh, there are a lot of them. Um, boy, you know, there, I mean, there were a number of high profile ones, like obviously the A-Rod one. Um, there was this story I wrote about, <laughs> co-wrote about deer antler spray that broke on the <laughs> Super Bowl media day and became like a huge fracas. And I remember like interviewing, you know, Ray Lewis in the locker room in a very testy exchange. And so that was pretty memorable. Um, when was that? was like 2012, right? Must have been around that. I mean, the Ravens won the Super Bowl that year, it was whatever year that was. Okay. Um, and um, and we didn't mean for it to, we, we had no idea it was going to come out on Super Bowl Media Day with the Ravens. Ray Lewis was in the story with the Ravens. Like they were underdogs. We didn't, didn't expect them to be there. It just worked out that timing that way. You know, one I co wrote, the Ohio State football coach resigned in response to it. So, I got to say, I did not love being in the aftermath of those kind of stories. Like, I don't like, <laughs> I don't like like being a lightning rod. Um, and so I thought those stories were sometimes, you know, important things to do because not, not because of like implicating pro athletes in particular for using like some of these products, but really because the proprietors of those products are using the pro athletes to market them usually in illegal ways for all sorts of other health things, right? They're just piggybacking on the athletes. Um, and so I thought these stories were important to do, but I don't enjoy being like a huge lightning rod in the aftermath. I got to say, I think some people enjoy that, but I'm not one of them. So since we're talking about athletes, uh, I know you're big into sports. Who is the most impressive just physical specimen or what they were able to do on a field or a court that you've ever seen? <sighs> Most impressive. Gosh, I've definitely seen some physical specimens. Boy, the most impressive. I mean, if you see a guy like the size of Ndamukong Sue moving the way he does, that's like pretty, it's like just very unusual. It's very striking to see someone that size moving that way. You know, and, and as I think some sometimes, as as a coach said, and, and I agree with this, there's a suddenness about him, which meant, you know, and he was really sort of in his prime at the time, which meant like he just like would show up in places and you're like, how did he get there so quick? And he's giant. And so I think that was really, um, really something to see. And also, by the way, I kind of asked that question to Michael Johnson, the the sprinter, and he runs a performance center where he gets people ready for the combine and things like that. And he said Ndamukong Sue was the, the biggest freak that he uh, he had at his center also. Oh, I loved watching Michael Johnson when I was growing up, but we'll, we'll jump back. Sorry, I could go down a rabbit hole about all this, but a, a large reason for this podcast even existing is I'm hoping people, they'll listen to this conversation and they'll learn some lessons and get excited about new opportunities. And something you discussed in the book that got me very excited was the wicked and kind environments. So I'd love for you to just expand what are wicked and kind learning environments. Yeah, those are terms coined by psychologist Robin Hogarth. And what he, what a kind learning environment means um, in activity or domain where basically all the information is available, the next steps are clear. Sometimes people even wait to take turns for each other. Um, the you, work tomorrow will always look like yesterday. So it's based on repetitive patterns. The rules don't change. And whenever you do something, you automatically get feedback that is both immediate and perfectly accurate. On the other end of the spectrum are wicked learning environments where information might be hidden. Um, rules may change without notice, so you can't just count on repeating patterns. Um, you you may or may not get feedback, and it may be delayed, it may be inaccurate, it may be partial. Um, and so Hogarth was enumerating why people learn from experience in certain areas 
and do not learn from experience in, in other areas. So in kind learning environments, just by doing something, you tend to get better at it. Um, in wicked learning environments, that's not the case. In fact, people from, from doing something over and over, people often become more confident, but not better. Uh, and so we have to be really conscious of which types, which type of environment we're in if we want to know, you know, the best ways to learn and, and whether we can trust our intuition. So what should we be looking out for to, to self-assess there, to understand which environment we're in and then how not to self-sabotage? Like you mentioned, you become overconfident and your skills aren't improving. Yeah. So, so kind learning environments tend to be pretty obvious, right? Like there's so, so like golf is one of the examples I use in the book where you do something discreet and, um, you immediately get feedback that's totally accurate and you do it again. It's like people who study skill acquisition sometimes characterize it as like basically an industrial task where you, you know, you're doing the same known thing over and over with as little deviation as possible. Um, and so I think those, those areas are kind of obvious when you're dealing in an area that doesn't have, you know, very rigid rules that you know of that involves human behavior for sure, where you're not getting a signal about exactly how you did right after you did something, then I think you have to be, you have to be pretty wary. And that's, that's most of the things that most of us do in work, right? So one of, one of the examples that Hogarth used that I love was of this um, famous physician who, who's a New York City physician and he was famous because by palpating patients' tongues or feeling around their their tongues with his hands, he could tell weeks before they showed a single symptom that they were going to get typhoid over and over. Predictions were correct. And he became prominent and, and wealthy doing this. And as one of his colleagues later observed, using only his hands, he was a more productive carrier of typhoid than even typhoid Mary. So it turned out that he was the one spreading the typhoid among patients. And the feedback, the delayed feedback he would get was that uh, his predictions were correct. So he should do more of that. And so that's like an incredibly wicked domain where the feedback teaches the exact wrong lesson, right? And so we have to figure out ways in wicked domains of trying to incorporate um, feedback that like breaks down segments of the task that you're doing and that that has systems that have try to evaluate the cause and effect between things that are flexible because the rules are constantly changing. And so those are those are much more difficult domains. Um, and and if we don't kind of if we assume people will just learn from experience, they'll often learn the wrong lessons from experience. Yeah, that's that's a negative feedback and, and something I find incredibly useful in my own development is having just the positive feedback loops that are quick. So in your yeah. research, have you found high achievers have an ability to expose themselves to, to more feedback loops or, or tap into those more? Is there anything your research showed? Yeah, I mean, there's a woman in the Netherlands named Mariah Elfrink Gemser um, who uh, studies what's called self-regulatory learners. And those these are people who basically you know, to, to simplify it, sort of um, take responsibility for their own learning. And they, they tend to get off learning plateaus um, more rapidly than others do. And they also tend to learn their own abilities uh, better. They, they have like better self-assessment. And one of the things she found they do is they constantly reflect a lot. So if nobody's giving them feedback, they're constantly reflecting on what they're doing and setting up little experiments for themselves. Like, I tried this to learn, you know, X skill. Here's how it worked out. Now I'm going to try something else. So they spend lots of time in experimentation to try to sort of tailor their environments to themselves a little bit. So there's a lot of that, but also systems can be made to encourage them where like you think of something, you know, she's, Mariah studied 
you know, she studied athletes from youth to all the way to the pros. And she studied people in classrooms like this was, you know, in different domains. And what she'd find in classrooms is like these self-regulatory learners. You give them a test and then you give them the answers like three weeks later and tell them what they did wrong. Like it's useless. Like if you if you want them to learn, they have to be getting that feedback um, much more quickly. It's not necessarily the right answer, but they they need to be. Um, you know, working a problem and then not just like hearing if any if it was like totally wrong weeks later where they're they're totally out of mind. So I think we can set up systems where um, when we're testing people uh, or we're trying to get them to learn that there's some type of, of feedback mechanisms that are that are quick, essentially. You mentioned their ability to self-assess. Was this incredibly methodical on on their behalf or was this almost more in their head and just through her research, she uncovered it? Well, so for some people, it came naturally and it was in their head. But part of, you know, one of her main findings was how can we get people for whom this doesn't come naturally to do it? Um, and so she would do things like give people, you know, make people start sort of a journal. And she would have these certain questions that seemed as if you would always answer them in the same way. You know, it would be assessing about, like, what do you think you're good and bad at? What are your weaknesses? Who do you need to get to help you? Um, you know, improve in a certain area, stuff like that. And people would think like, well, why would I have to answer this like, you know, every week because I'll answer it the same all the time. And it turns out they don't because we all change a lot more than we expect. And so for people that don't do it naturally, she would basically try to get them to keep these journals where they would assess the same questions over and over and over. And that would sort of prompt them to do some more of this. Do you start implementing things like that into your own day? Heck yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I have a thing I now call the, my my book of small experiments. Where So like when I got, I was a college track runner. And when I got out of that and got into the work world, I sort of transitioned my, um, like a training journal. You know, I had a goals book for running and I took that into my work life. And I realized it actually did not work <laughs> nearly as well um, because track goals are really black and white and goals in the wider world are not really like that. Um, and what I use now is what I call this book of small experiments, where it's more like what I did when I was a science grad student, where I have some hypothesis. I, I want to learn this skill or explore this interest. Here's my hypothesis for, you know, what I'll learn or how I'll feel about it or whatever. And then I go find a way to test that and then come back and reflect on it. So it's almost like little personal experiments. And, and that really, I sort of been doing that somewhat naturally. Like that's why I'm changing jobs a lot, but the work of Herminia Ibarra, who I wrote about in range, that's what really convinced me to to formalize this and and keep this little book of experiments because she she has this phrase I love. She studies people who make successful career transitions and well and, and people who make unsuccessful career transitions. she also studies. but um, she has this phrase, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. And what she means is that all this psychology shows that, we, first of all, we view ourselves as finished products all the time. We say like, oh yeah, we've, we've changed a lot in the past, but you know, now we're done. That's called the end of history illusion. And it turns out we underestimate how much we'll change at every time point in life. And not only that, but when we think we're a finished product, um, our insight into ourselves is actually constrained by our previous experiences, you know, that, and we don't have as much insight into ourselves before doing stuff as we think we do. So you actually have to do stuff. Um, and then reflect on it. So the saying, we learn who we are in practice, not in theory. What she means is, you know, we have to do stuff and then think about it. We can't just introspect and figure out who we are. So, so she would have all these phrases I loved, like act and then think, 
you know, it's, it's sort of a reversal of the normal think and then act because you don't really know who you are until you've done some of the acting. So, so I'm constantly experimenting and I've found this book of small experiments to be really useful. I follow you on Twitter, so I don't think you've done this, but the book of small experiments, have you ever posted any photos of what your, your thought process looks like in the book? No, the only time I've really talked publicly about it, I think is um, Dan Pink. Yeah, we had him on uh, a few months ago. So the listeners are familiar with Dan's work. Oh, great. So he's he lives close to me and and we're friends and he had me on his pink cast. Um, so he has a newsletter and he has a short video in it with like tips and it's called pink cast. And so he had me on pink cast um, last month and I talked about it a little bit on there and 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 sort of embarrassingly showed it to the camera because it's it the cover is Allison Alice from Alice in Wonderland looking behind a curtain and says curiouser and curiouser. So I was a little embarrassed to have that on the pink cast, but whatever. <laughs> Do you think you'll ever? I, I'm I'm just so fascinated by people's processes. So I'm always intrigued if they'll ever show preview into into more of their process. That's a good question. Um I don't know. Like I just started a newsletter and that's the first time I've ever done something where I could even like you know, kind of share the stuff I'm doing in a way that isn't just talking to someone else or or writing a book or an article that that's like about me. So, so I'm just starting to think about that. So maybe I will, but I'm also at this stage probably a little self conscious about my my book of experiment. You know, I, I write in very frank way <laughs> um, to, to myself and try to be really honest about myself. Um, so I would consider it, but I'd have to think about it a little more. Maybe I maybe I would describe it. In, see, that's a, that's the other thing though is if I were going to do that, like in a really sort of really show, you know, how I went through some of these personal experiments. I'm not even sure like where I would put that at this stage. Like maybe I can start a blog or something. I would love if in one of your newsletters you just dive deep on that and and pictures and explain the entire process. I think you're underestimating the amount of people who would find that so interesting and learn so much from. So you've got my vote. If you're you're ever teetering on potentially doing it and doing it, I really hope you do do it. Well, I only just started the newsletter and I sort of like, um, and I've been having a little fun with it. So I'm definitely taking suggestions. So maybe I'll think about that. That'll (laughs) probably happen at some point, actually. But I got to get over my self-consciousness about it. I'd be very excited for that. So I I come from a sports background. so, So I played lacrosse. And something I started to realize as I got older and more advanced is just my ability to recognize patterns in lacrosse, I thought helped me really be able to grasp other sports or even this is kind of weird. I I felt very confident in, in how overall humans moved and how space was assessed on the field. And even yep. in like a crowded environment, I just feel more comfortable. So what, what have you discovered about people's abilities? And this doesn't have to be sports specific, but just around pattern recognition. No, that's so funny though. First of all, you mentioned about just like being around crowds because I've noticed that too. Like I played a ton of different sports and so I'm pretty physically literate and I'll notice like people bumping into each other when they're walking on the street. I'm like, how did you not see that coming? Like I saw those people are going to bump into each other from like 10 meters away. You know what I mean? Like clearly you were both starting to lean left. Like some, you know, it's, so I'm always like surprised by that, like lack of physical literacy. Um, Cause like when I'm running, sometimes if I, I'm usually on trails, but if I break into a street, I'm pretty confident that I'm not going to run into anyone. Cause like you can start to see what's going to develop before it develops, you know? And that's that's kind of related to your point. So like the Australian Institute of Sport studied people who played at least three, what's called invasion sports when they were a kid. So lacrosse would certainly be an invasion sport. It's like anything where people or are trying to get past each other or trying to get a ball past each other, basically. Um, and the people who had, who had played at least three when they were younger, before age 12, I think, it doesn't matter if they played formally or not, um, would then pick up 
any other invasion sport more rapidly. So it was like they had this base. They, they were they looked very much like kids who grew up bilingual who then seemed to have an advantage for picking up a third language. Um, and it's very much based on pattern recognition. So the this, the patterns you're talking about is what's called anticipatory skills. So basically you learn how to analyze arrangements of bodies and and flights of balls and things like that to see what's coming before it happens because the game is actually unfolding too quickly for you just to react to. And this was kind of a topic in the first chapter of, of the sports gene looking at why Major League Baseball hitters can't hit softball pitchers. It's because the body cues are different and so they don't – they then their reflexes actually aren't fast enough to do it. So if they're faced with unfamiliar body cues, they can't anticipate what's coming, different patterns. Um, so I think your experience, your intuition is exactly in line um, with the science that people who have had, you know, this broad pattern exposure can then apply it in other areas. And it, it gets to this classic research finding that summarizes breadth of training predicts breadth of transfer. So transfer is your ability to take your knowledge or skills, like the patterns you recognize, like your physical literacy, and apply them to areas that, you know, to problems that you haven't seen before. And that's that's really that's really sort of the the pot of gold. And what predicts your ability to do that is how broad, like the diversity of patterns and problems you faced when you were training. I'm just trying to think deeper now on the diversity of problems that I faced while training. Did you see any examples of professional athletes being able to self-assess this early on and add more of these intentionally? Um, I don't. I don't think athletes themselves did that, but sometimes I think. But I think there are people who set up systems for athletes that for sure did. So, like France, which won the men's um, last men's World Cup, they decades ago started overhauling their development pipeline, where they they realized that you had to have this diversity of challenges, but that also kids were going to, you know, some kids were going to want to specialize in soccer young. So they organized the development pipeline so that they're playing soccer, but it's totally different. They'll play in different shape area, different days, different surfaces, different types of balls, different number of players. So it's like they're playing a game with a ball and feet, but they are varying the challenge tremendously all the time. And so I think they really very systematically tried to incorporate that. In some places that happens naturally. Like if you go to Brazil, the kids aren't even playing soccer. They're playing futsal with this small ball that stays on the ground and they're playing on sand one day and cobblestones the next day and sometimes in a crowded area with uneven number of players. And so it's just this incredible diversity of challenges. So I think in some places that comes from sort of street playing culture. In other places it's it's systematized. But I can't think of, you know, only athletes, I think, you know, they'll they'll say it in retrospect. Like I was talking to Steve Nash recently, and he didn't touch a basketball till he was 13. Um, you know, became two-time NBA MVP, and he's a normal size guy. So um, I like to use that as an example. But and and so he's exploring starting an academy that's kind of um, incorporates these principles. But I don't think he realized anything like this at the time when he was a kid. I think it's all in retrospect. But but some of the adults realize it now based on the research, and so we'll try to set up development accordingly. You mentioned Steve Nash. I'm a huge fan of Steve Nash. I remember I was at a, a Phoenix Sun game, and during halftime, I saw him hit all 47, I think it was, it might have been 44 of his warm-up shots. He was just cool as a cucumber, and I just loved seeing that. But what impressed you uh, when having conversations with Steve Nash? Anything stand out? I mean, very, I mean, he's a really cerebral guy, interested in a lot of different things. Um, and first of all, just totally cool guy, you know, like really unassuming, um, humble guy. And 
one of the things we were talking about recently was there was this HBO Real Sports um, special on athlete development in Norway. And Norway like exploded the last Winter Olympics. It was like the greatest Olympic performance in history from ever any country, arguably. And they've like, they've really overhauled their athletic development to incorporate this. Like no athletic specialization before age 12 and all this kind of, they don't, they, they pretty much banned like formal competition before age 12. But, um, and he was like so excited about this. And so first of all, I think there's like a cool, like youthful excitement about him. And also he's just like a really humble guy. And, you know, there's, there's a, there's a lot to like, like when I first talked to him, I was sort of wondering if he was as cool a guy as he sort of seems from afar. And, and I think the answer is yes. I love hearing that uh, about athletes. I truly admire. I'm not very familiar with Norway, but this goes back to uh, a different career of mine. And you mentioned Steve thinking about launching an academy. And I, I coached a number of lacrosse teams, had my own academy, and I always battled internally with parents begging me to have offerings for younger and younger kids. And I always felt I was doing them harm by not allowing them to focus on other sports and get a ton of different sports in. So so what's your take on this? Should kids have the ability to play multiple sports throughout their their young lives and then pick a specialty later on? I mean, that's what the, you know, in in the in the invasion sports, that's what the science would say is the best. Um, but I think there are a couple things at play here. First of all, well, first of all, when people focus on a sport early, it ends up all this selection ends up happening just because of biological maturity. So like I was recently looking at some data from the UEFA U17 championships. So, you know, probably the most important junior soccer tournament in the world. And 47% of the participants were born in January, February, and March because, and only 6% in the last three months of the year, because when you push selection really early, all you end up doing is selecting the kids, you know, who, who were born early in the selection year. And so at age seven or whatever, they were just older and bigger. Um, and then that washes out at the elite level. So what it tells you is you're really advantaging a bunch of people who actually aren't going to go on to make it because you pick them based on sort of, you know, not the most important characteristics. So that's one problem. The other thing, you know, is it's it's hard to tell parents, like, let your kid play a bunch of sports because even though that's what the science says, like, they're like, I lived in Brooklyn until recently and there was a U7 travel soccer team that met across the street from me in this park. And I don't think... Anybody in the world thinks six-year-olds need to travel because they can't find good enough competition in a city of nine million people, okay? Like, no, nobody thinks that. But those kids are customers for whoever's running that league, right? And they want to keep them from the other leagues that want them as customers. And so they set up these systems where if you're not on the U7 team, can't be on the U8 team, and so on and so forth. So if, if the adults make a system that doesn't allow the kids to participate unless they specialize early, then what are you supposed to tell parents? But I, but I wish it weren't that way. And I, and I hope that there's a happy medium like what France did or like Judy Murray, you know, who's the mother of Andy and Jamie Murray, the tennis players. And she started a, a camp where she'll sort of like French soccer, where she'll take kids and they're playing tennis, but not really. They're like trying to hit balls through tree branches back and forth to each other. They're like doing something with a racket and a ball, but you know, it doesn't really resemble tennis, but that's enough to convince the parents that like, okay, first of all, because it's Andy and Jamie Murray's mother, they're like, fine, we can trust it. But seriously, like it's, and, and she realizes that completely. Um, 
and so it's sort of like they're sort of doing tennis, but it's like the futsal of tennis, right? It's actually these like incredible variable challenges. And that's what I think the key is. Like, I don't think it matters if you put on a basketball jersey instead of a football jersey. I think it's about this diversity of movement and diversity of problems you face. So I'm hoping astute coaches will start to, you know, well, and I shouldn't say start to, many already are, um, incorporate that even if we are in a system that often forces specialization for for reasons that have nothing to do with optimal development. You just said diversity of movement. Is there something you've seen across a lot of successful athletes that help them develop that diversity of movement? Oh, yeah. You just reminded me of someone I need to email back, so I'm writing his name down. Um, <laughs> Jean Cote, a sports science researcher um, in Canada. So he went... And one of his interesting findings is he went and looked at odds ratios of um, athletes becoming elite based based on various characteristics. So odds ratio meaning an odds ratio of one means you're as likely as you know the average person to have some outcome. An odds ratio of two means you're twice as likely. So let's say you're seven feet tall, then your odds ratio of making the NBA is much higher than normal, obviously. So what he found was that the odds ratios of making it to the pros in a given sport based on the size of town that someone grew up in, has been going, the towns that are give you the best odds have been getting smaller and smaller and smaller, basically. So it's like these towns that are like under, you know, 50,000 people or something like that um, now have the highest odds ratios. And it wasn't always that way. You know, it was like basketball players were coming from cities. Um, and when he's gone and profiled some of these towns, what he sees is that these towns there aren't so many people that it isn't so competitive that kids are forced to specialize. So they don't have to specialize just to be on the middle school team or whatever. And so they don't have very good junior teams um, because, you know, like the the New York City traveling teams are winning the 10-year-old championships, but the best way to develop a 20-year-old isn't the same as the way to develop a 10-year-old. Um, and so these kids will get to do all this different stuff because it's not so competitive when they're young. And it's really funny that that's where the pro athletes are coming from now, because I think with good intentions of specialized, giving athletes a head start and specializing them early, we've basically made sure they no longer come from the places that have like the highest profile traveling teams and all this stuff, because early on you want them doing all this sampling. So, so I think that was an interesting finding that sort of reinforced this idea that pro athletes are coming from these places where they're allowed to do this incredible diversity of stuff. Have you come across anything that isn't related to sports, but is incredibly beneficial for young developing athletes? I, I know this probably wouldn't be the case, but something like a student who is heavily involved in music theater, how skills in that, is there any correlation translation in two completely separate things, but help you out athletically? You know, in, in terms of um, hard research findings, I don't, I don't know well, except for the self-regulatory learning stuff. So, um, and again, that goes back to Mariah Elfring Gemser's work where she would find that if someone was in some kind of activity, didn't matter what it was, that would get them to start like self-assessing constantly, that those would transfer very well into the sports area and vice versa. If someone developed that in sports, they could transfer it out to the rest of their life. So there are those sorts of things. Um, otherwise, I don't, I don't know... You know, I would have to speculate on that. I mean, I think it is the case in some things. Like, I certainly think there are athletes who do things that help them with the mental aspects of of sports, where sometimes it's good for them just to have like other hobbies, other things to focus on, so they're not focusing on their sport all the time. But um, 
you know, things like I think a lot of athletes have been increasingly taking up things like meditation because they're trying to get in a certain, be able to reliably get in a certain state of mind um, or other what's called autogenic training, which is like these sort of programmed relaxation techniques and things like that. But I think mostly I'd be speculating. So I'm trying to think of if there, I can't think of much in the way of studies like that. So like, because outside of sports, I can think of studies like that. For example, where there were a couple of recent studies where medical students, um, and I think the most recent one was at the University of Pennsylvania, and it was with ophthalmology students. And what they were finding was the students weren't progressing as well as professors wanted in terms of their ability to visually recognize certain conditions and to then describe them visually. And so they did this randomized trial, and this has been done again, um, well, it was done, it was done before this too, where some of the students got like normal medical training and some of them had to go to like the museum and get some art history training with art historians showing them, you know, how did, how do you describe a painting? What do you look for? And all these things like that. And then they had to write about them. And it turned out those students had a better improvement in their ability to recognize and describe conditions than the ones who were just doing the medical training. So that was like really taking from this other area where they were studying with people who, who learn how to look at things in a different way. I mean, that's what, what art historians and art critics are. And it transferred very powerfully to their main skill. I can't think of anything, and there are other studies like that outside of sports. I can't think of anything that's like as far flung as that in sports. I'm trying to go through my, through my brain to think if there's more stuff like that because I want to hook it to something beyond my speculation, but nothing's coming right to mind. Yeah, no, I think I was thinking about your new book, Range, and I'm pretty sure it was in Range that you mentioned the Nobel laureates. And they're so much yeah. more likely to excel in something such as such as fiction writing or, or something completely out of their domain expertise. Why, why was this the case? Oh, yeah. And you know, actually, they weren't even necessarily likely to excel. They were just likely to do it with enthusiasm. Okay. <laughs> so they were, they were, so what this, what this study found was that a typical scientists have about the same are about as likely as the general public to have like a hobby, you know, an aesthetic hobby, whether it be glass blowing, fiction writing, drawing, photography, magic, acting, whatever. Um, and, but scientists who had been inducted in national academies were much more likely to have an aesthetic kind of hobby. And Nobel laureates were way more, they were like 22 times as likely um, as typical scientists to have some of those hobbies. And it turns out, if you look at the scientists who who study people like this, that you keep seeing these terms, like one that I use in the book in range, called the network of enterprise. So these individuals will often have like a lot of things going on. Some in that are you know clearly related to their daily work, and some that are not related, but that typically end up informing their work in some way, whether it's a way of thinking about something or reframing a problem or whatever it is. They'll have this network of enterprise where they're doing these, a bunch of different disparate things, but they all sort of end up informing one another. And so this um, Spanish Nobel laureate, um, Santiago Ramón y Cajal, who's also better known as the father of modern neuroscience, he had this quote I loved where he described these innovators who have these network of enterprises. And he said, to him, who observe, to him who observes them from afar, it appears as though they are dissipating their energies, while in reality they are strengthening and channeling them. And so what he was saying was that when you look at people like him and they have these like many different interests they're pursuing, it looks like, well, they're just unfocused. But actually, all these, these things, these different ways of thinking about things and these different disciplines end up feeding into their sort of exploration and turns out to be you know, part of what, what makes them so special. And in many cases... It dovetails with kind of chapter five of range where 
a lot of the breakthroughs of problem solving happen when someone hits on an analogy from a totally different domain that helps them reframe a problem. And so a lot of these scientists from their hobbies, they'll end up with some analogy that helps them reframe a problem in a way that nobody else has. And that's where they make their breakthroughs. Yeah, I'm involved in a lot of different things. So I, I create these, this network of enterprise. And I guess I'm asking this selfishly, is there a number of things that just almost just create chaos as opposed to helping with these analogies? That's if, if there's like a critical number, I certainly don't know what it is. I mean, it's funny you mentioned chaos. Like one of the guys I talk a little bit about is this psychologist who studied creativity and did these very deep investigations of Charles Darwin. And he keeps describing all of his like, notes and things as as chaos. He's like totally chaos. Professor Dean Keith Simonton? No, this one wasn't Dean Keith Simonton. This was Howard Gruber. Dean Keith Simonton has also done, you know, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. And he comes up several times in range, but this was Howard Gruber in particular. Okay. Yeah. I saw him come up in a range. We we've had him on the podcast. I love his work. So when I saw him, I was I was happy to see that. Oh yeah. Fascinating guy. Um and So I think it's difficult. Like if you saw my research process, I guarantee you, you would call it chaotic. Um, I call it chaotic. Uh, And so I don't know if there's a critical number, right? And this gets at this issue, I think, of, you know, in range, of course, I'm talking about breadth and generalists. And I want to differentiate that from dilettantes, which is just someone who only ever dabbles and never gets really interested in anything in particular. Um, And I don't think that's the way to go necessarily or definitely. So the the part of range where I talk about technological innovation, um, you know, there are these studies that show that you can in, in and I like that area because you can actually classify people as specialists or generalists based on their patent history. So they're specialists if they've worked in one or a very small number of technological classes over the course of their career. There are 450 different technological classes and then lots of subclasses in the patent office. And Or they're a generalist if they've worked across a large number of technology classes. And in, in research on inventors, both the specialists and the generalists make important contributions. But then there are people who have not that much breadth or depth and they don't make much in the way of contributions. And then there are the people who typically make the biggest contributions where they are very broad, but they often have like an area or two of some depth, not quite as deep as the specialists, but but more depth than the pure generalists. And so I think it's really this sort of art of accumulating these broad areas of knowledge while also being able to anchor yourself now and again in in some areas where you you know you have some more depth you mentioned the ability to accumulate new knowledge and you said your process would be almost viewed as a bit chaotic as well but you appear to be someone who's really discovered to learn and retain information effectively even the amount of studies you've listed so far the quotes you've said what are some of the ways you've discovered to accumulate and remember things Oh, well, first of all, I'm reading a lot about the, you know, and <laughs> reading a lot of performance literature, I come a lot across a lot of memory research. And so um, sometimes I'll incorporate that into how I learn things. But also having to think really hard in order to form um, studies into a narrative. That's, that's you know, what memory researchers would call building a semantic network. And that's the best way to do it. Like if I'm just reading a book, I'm not necessarily reading it as deeply as I am if I may have to write about it. You know, and I find this in everything I do. If I talk to someone about their their job, if I know I'm going to have to write about their job, I'm probably engaging in a lot deeper, more active thinking way than I would normally. And so one, because like 
I don't have any photographic memory. Like if I put my keys down and spin in a circle, I lose them, you know, like the next guy. Um, but having to form all this stuff into a narrative that makes sense and then going back and fact checking it and doing all these kinds of things, it just embeds it really deeply in my memory. And in my own sort of network of enterprise when I'm writing is I'll have all these topics and I'll work on one and maybe I'll get stuck or maybe I'll get confused and I'll leave one and I'll go to some other one and then I'll come back to it, you know, and I keep circling around like that. And that turns out um, to be like a perfect example of what's called the spacing effect, where if you space out your study of something, it moves it to long-term memory. So one of the classic examples is this study of people who were taught some a little bit of Spanish. And one group was taught eight hours of Spanish on one day, vocabulary. The other group was taught four hours one day and four hours a month later. Same total amount of practice. When they were brought back eight years later, the group that had the spaced practice remembered 250% more with no practice in the interim, eight years later. And so the best way to move something to your long-term memory is actually to wait until you're basically on the verge of forgetting it or have just forgotten it and then to go back to it. And that shifts it to your long-term memory. And so I'm, I'm constantly doing that because I have these different threads I'm working on and I'll move between them when I get stuck on one and sort of circle back. And so spacing is kind of incorporated into my workflow and spacing has an incredible impact on memory. You mentioned you come across a lot of different studies. Anything else you were intrigued about and then the research you did led you to implement it? Um, yeah, I mean, so all so chapter four is about the cognitive psychology of learning um, that, with apologies to Daniel Kahneman. I titled it, titled it Learning Fast and Slow. Um, and I think one of the surprises to me was that there are these really well-known methods for improving learning, like spacing, um, that are so rarely implemented. Um, another one is interleaving, which means like if you have to study something, whatever it is, ideas, flashcards, whatever, you don't want blocked practice, right? You want to mix everything together and so that the order is random. There was just a study. This didn't come out in time for me to put in range, um, but because I would have otherwise. There was a seventh grade math classrooms that were randomized to types of math study. Some classrooms got what's called blocked practice, where they practice a certain problem type over and over and over, then the next type, so AAAA, type BBBBB, so on. The other class gets, or other classes, get randomized to interleaved training, which means they don't see the same problem twice in a row, or it's all, order's all randomized. And in the first condition, what you learn how to do is to execute procedures. It's called using procedures knowledge. In the second condition, what you do is learn how to match a strategy to a type of problem. And so those learners in the interleave condition were more frustrated in class. Um, you know, they think they're learning less, and then the test comes around and they blow the other group away. Like the effect size of this study was like moving a kid from the 50th percentile to the 80th percentile just because they studied it in a different manner. And so I try to incorporate that with everything I'm trying to learn where I mix things up and and it caused me to struggle a lot. And I'm often like, upset that I forgot something and I have to really work hard to try to retrieve it. And that also then incorporates what's called the generation effect, where you want to struggle, right? Like frustration is not a sign that you aren't learning, but ease is. That's Nate Cornell, a cognitive psychologist, told me that. What you want to do is always be incorporating struggle into whatever you're learning. So we think of testing just as a, as a measure for evaluation, which is unfortunate because testing turns out to be this incredible um, learning tool, but you should actually test yourself before you're ready, before you know the material. 
because it's the attempt to generate an answer that then primes your brain to retain the information once you're then given the right answer. So all these sorts of so-called desirable difficulties, uh, spacing, testing, and interleaving, I try to incorporate into like everything I'm learning. Um, and the result is that it makes me look like I have miraculous memory when if you caught me in some other domain, I would not seem that way at all. I absolutely love hearing all about this. I, I'm so intrigued. And I'm just thinking though, you're talking about difficult things. So how does someone's personality play into all this? Ooh, that's a complicated question. Um, I think as opposed to just an individual. So, so let me, can I, can I tell you the study that most surprised me in the entire book of range? Because I think maybe that bears a little bit on this. That was one of my questions. So yeah, please. Oh, okay. So the one that was the most surprising to me was this study done at the Air Force Academy. And the Air Force Academy has this incredible setup to do a kind of study that you could never pull off anywhere else where they get their freshman class, um, you know, of, of hundreds or a thousand students um, coming in every year. And all of those students have to take a sequence of three math courses, calculus one, calculus two, and then a third course. And they are randomized to professors in year one in calculus one. Then they are re-randomized in year two, and then they are re-randomized in year three. So you have this incredible experimental condition where student characteristics are spread out evenly among classes and re-randomized. They all take the same exact test and the test is graded by committee. So professors have no discretion to like boost their own students or anything like that. And these researchers wanted to study the impact of teaching. And what they found was that the professors who did the best at getting students to overachieve based on the characteristics they came in with in Calculus one, the Calculus one professors who got that, those students then went on to underachieve in the follow-on courses, right? So the, so the teacher who, whose kids out of, the professor out of 100 whose, whose students in Calculus one overachieved, I think they, they made him like the sixth most effective professor in Calculus one. That's, they overachieved on the test by a lot. He was dead last out of 100 professors and how those students then did in the follow-up courses. And what the researchers concluded was that the best way to get the students to do well on the Calculus 1 test was to teach a very narrow curriculum that very much reflected the test and taught them this using procedures knowledge. Whereas the professors whose students struggled in Calculus 1, and by the way, gave they, those students gave the professors poor ratings and rated their own learning as less, then went on to perform much better in the follow-on courses because they were getting what's called making connections knowledge, where instead of just teaching the curriculum for what's on the test, the professors would bring in all these different concepts that were connected to one another and the students would have to struggle, but would ultimately get this these frameworks that would allow them to transfer knowledge when they saw problems that they had never seen before. So instead of just getting using procedures knowledge, they would get this making connections knowledge. And what's deeply counterintuitive for me, but became one of the themes of range, is the fact that things that you can do that cause the fastest short-term improvement can sometimes undermine your long-term development. And not only that, but that we are often hardwired to think about this wrong. So these students, again, they were rating the Calculus One professors high if they did well on the test. And they felt that their learning, you know, was, they learned a lot if they did well on the test, but they were actually systematically hampered for the follow-on courses. And so I think we really, in terms of a personality trait that I think is important, I think one way or another, you have to be willing to um, tolerate a bunch of struggle in development if you want to get the, the best long-term development. 
and divorce your evaluation of your own learning from very short-term goals. And I think those are very hard things to do, but enormous competitive advantages if someone has a kind of personality where they can they can convince themselves that it's worthwhile. Do you think that personality to be able to handle those early struggles can be taught? I think the first law of behavioral genetics, so-called, is that all um, behaviors have a genetic component. But no behavior that I've ever seen um, is all genetics or nearly all genetics. And so my opinion is that all personality traits um, can be altered. Uh, the extent to which that can be altered, um, I don't know, but I think it probably can. And I think one of the reasons I wanted to write about it is because I, I hope that <laughs> I hope to give people ammunition <laughs> to say like, look, you know, what works in the short term may not be the best for long-term development. Um, and so you know, I, I think we, I think like a lot of practices and personality traits, it certainly comes a lot easier to some people than others, but that doesn't mean that, you know, with a certain amount of effort, other people can't build some of it. And, and I think everyone could improve in that to some degree. We're discussing failures right now, and I'm thinking about failures and losses. And you hear a lot of elite level athletes discuss that they can never get one of those losses out of their heads. They always just think about the losses. Is this something that you actually deem is is true? Most of these elite level athletes really do mostly think about the losses. I mean, my favorite editor from Sports Illustrated once called me. He was like chastising me, and he called me the the. He said, "Don't." Basically, the situation was I had a story out that was, you know, doing really well, and um, I was only focused on the criticism. And he said, "Stop being the athlete who only hears the booze." Um, and that really stuck with me because I realized I was doing that. And honestly, in some ways, that motivated me. Um, but at the same time, it's not a good way to live for too long um, if you're only hearing the booze and not the cheers. And I do find that, um, you know, those sorts of and and I don't think that's specific to athletes, honestly. Like I think we have a huge propensity to focus on what we consider like near misses, right? So, you know, there's always there's this research finding that bronze medalists are often happier than silver medalists because the silver medalist is like, I just barely missed out on being, you know, the world champion. And the bronze medalist is like, I just made it into a medal. Um, and so they report being more content with their performance, even though they did worse than the silver medalist. Um and so I think we all have a propensity to do that and think about when, you know, we should have just done something else, not just athletes. Um, and so I do think a lot of elite athletes have that, but I also think that they have a much better than is typical ability to be present when they're doing something and and to move that out of their mind when they actually have to get down to business. And I think that's a very undervalued skill. Okay. I asked the question because growing up, I always heard that and it didn't really resonate with me. And even have not played professional lacrosse in a number of years, I still don't think about the losses that much. I can remember the wins very vividly. Have you seen other athletes like this? I think it's really individual. Gotcha. I think it's really individual. Um, I'm trying, And now I'm trying to think about my own. I mean, my, my most vivid memory is definitely of a good performance as an athlete than a bad performance. But, but then I will say like, you know, in some of, but then again, like I said, I was sometimes the athlete who only hears the booze. So, so I don't really know. I mean, I think the, I think what a lot of the best athletes do is they'll use some of those losses as like motivation, you know. Um, and I think that's fine. But some of the some of that is probably just sort of media stuff, right? It's like when when coaches will like tack up articles about like 
people who are doubting the Golden State Warriors and New England Patriots, you're like, nobody is less doubted in the world than the New England Patriots, okay? And yet you can still always find some articles to like make them look like an underdog in some way or another. So I think some of it is just sort of motivational stuff that that people say for the media because, you know, and if, if you look at like, if, if you look at the guys who are, you know, become commentators who are pro athletes, like they definitely relive their victories publicly constantly. So I think those stick with them pretty well. <laughs> Well, I do appreciate you answering some of those questions that that pertain to me specifically. But I want to now jump over into the serial innovators. And it's something that that you brought up. And I'm pretty sure, was it Abby Griffin, her research yeah. around serial innovators? And I just want to know what came out of her work and, and just about the propensity of people to become serial innovators. What did you find and what intrigued you most about them? Yeah, so her, this this goes back again to that sort of network of enterprise stuff. So she would, I, I basically decided when I was reading a bunch of her, bunch of her work, to pull out certain phrases that I kept seeing appear, you know, in in people who studied creativity and creative um, producers, they would use these different phrases, whether it was network of enterprise or some other phrase. Um, and they were all talking about the same thing. And so many of them came up in Abby Griffin's work. So when she was, her work would describe these serial invaders, people who make repeated creative contributions to their organizations. And it would be like, uh, they have a need to learn from many different domains. They have a need to communicate with people outside of their own area. They read more and more widely than their peers. They appear to flit among ideas, which doesn't normally sound like a compliment. Um, they use analogies from other domains for problem solving, et cetera, et cetera. All this stuff that sounds like kind of like they're unfocused sort of um, if you didn't know better. And she would kind of give advice to HR people that was like, hey, when you dis- when you define your job really narrowly, you're accidentally screening these people out because they are not square peg and square hole types of people. They often have had this zigzagging background. Um, they have these outside interests. And, you know, it, they may look like they're unfocused. Um, but really as Santiago Ramoni Cajal said, they, rather than dissipating their energies, they are um, channeling and strengthening them. But I think that can be hard for um, HR professionals to see sometimes, especially when you can go on LinkedIn and find the square peg for the square hole like really quickly anytime you want. And so I think organizations are in danger of screening those people out if they define their jobs too narrowly. I've been talking a lot about HR practices with a number of high-level executives, and I know they're incorporating more personality tests and to assess these types of traits. Are any of those that you've come across interesting to you? Any personality tests? Yeah, to, to help understand some of these underlying skills someone might have, but aren't so black and white. Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I'm glad that they're trying to do that. And I think the devil's in the details of are those personality tests validated for whatever outcome they want. I know there are a lot of personality tests out there that are not validated. Um and so I think it would really depend on, I'm, I'm glad they're trying to get at that. And I think it would really depend on on the kind of test. But if, if it's tests that are looking for these sorts of things, like their wide interests, their ability to use analogies from other domains, um, their, how eager they are to communicate with people outside of their domain. If the tests are bearing on those sorts of things, um, then then I think it might be worthwhile. But I'd have to know if like the specific tests were validated for those specific outcomes. Okay, I got you. One one thing I could spend an entire day discussing with you was I'm pretty sure it was chapter nine. It was lateral thinking with withered technology. I would love for you just to even give a a preview of this. I I know the listeners are already going to be so intrigued about the new book, uh, but I would love just touching on this for a minute. 
Yeah, so to, to get to that, I think it's useful to tell the story of a Japanese gentleman named Gunpei Yokoi, just in brief, um, who didn't score well in his electronics exams. Um, and so he had to settle for a low-tier job as a machine maintenance worker in Kyoto, whereas his pals who did better went to big companies in Tokyo. And the playing card company was in trouble. Um, and he was goofing around one day. He was a tinkerer, word for thing making in manozukuri in Japanese. It's just like make you like to make stuff. Um, and that was him. And he made a toy, like an extendable arm, um, you know, like the kind of crisscrossing uh, arms that you might see like fire out of a robot's stomach in old cartoons. Um, and he was just playing around doing that. And the company president saw him and said, turn that into a toy. We're going to market it because the company desperately needed to diversify. And he did that and they marketed it and it did pretty well. And so the company president essentially assigned him to start a toy and game operation. And he realized he was not equipped to work on the cutting edge, but that he could combine knowledge from domains in ways that specialists could no longer see because they were too narrowly focused. So essentially what he would do is he would look at technology that was already well understood and just take it from one area to another where it was seen as innovation. So he took, he combined some technology from the credit card industry and the calculator industry and made a handheld video game. And so this playing card company, which is called Nintendo, um, which was a uh, playing card company founded in a wood storefront in the 19th century, um, became a toy company. And Gunpei Yokoi called this philosophy lateral thinking with withered technology, which meant Wither technology, he meant technology that was already well understood. It's already out there. wasn't necessarily at the cutting edge. And lateral thinking was taking it from one area to another area where it was more rare. So he would just combine things in new ways. And that became like the guiding philosophy of development in Nintendo. Um, and, you know, and in fact, it became the, uh, at the center of his magnum opus, the Game Boy, which used a decade-old processor and you know, screen that looks like rotting lettuce and uh, four grayscale shades of graphics that's smeared across the screen. And it it came out at the same time as two color competitors and destroyed them because he focused on things that, that his consumers actually wanted. And using withered technology meant that it was very well understood to game programmers who could just pump out games really quickly. So they had much better selection than their competitors. Um, and that, that, was, that was how he sort of triumphed without being uh, at the cutting edge. And it's still a guiding philosophy for Nintendo today. That was a, a story I was unfamiliar with. So when I read that in chapter nine, I just loved hearing about that. I'm so happy you included that in the book. The book is something I really did enjoy. And, and I know you must have had a difficult but enjoyable time writing it. In all of your research, they could be dead or alive. Was there someone you came across who's just impressed you the most out of anyone else? In this book specifically? Let's do, can we do range and then the sports gene as well? Okay, um... In range, I mean, there were a lot of people that impressed me in range, but but um, one guy, well, oh gosh, I'm choosing between two. Okay, in in range, the first one that comes to mind is someone who kind of became a bit of a role model for me, actually, um, whose name is Francis Hesselbein. So I won't give away the whole story, but basically she took her first, what she calls professional job, you know, her first non-volunteer job in her mid-50s. And became the CEO of the Girl Scouts um, a while after that, and basically rescued them from disaster, and added I think 130,000 volunteers and a huge number of new members. All of these people who she paid in a sense of mission, not in money, um, because she was able to motivate and inspire so many people. And I saw her recently 
uh, in Manhattan because she runs an organization in Manhattan called the Francis Hesselbein Leadership Institute, and she still teaches at West Point. Um, and she was asking me all these questions and was curious about new stuff and wanted me to read some journal article. And she's, you know, at the mere age of 103 and a half, um, she's still working five days a week. And when I, I remember when I asked her, like, what was your training for this kind of leadership? And she like waved me off and was like, no training. I just did what was needed at the time. And then by doing that, you know, it became training. Um, and I just found her incredibly inspiring. And I, and I loved to to relate her story and range. And I, I stay in touch with her um, and her, you know, her, some of her phrases really stick in my head. Like, she's, you know, to, you have to carry a big basket to bring something home. That basically means if you have your mind wide open, you can learn something from any experience. And when she, when she told me that phrase, it, it inspired me to, when I was stuck with something with range to take a, a beginner's online fiction writing course, um, right? Where nothing I'd done matters. Nobody cares. I'm totally a beginner again. And one of the exercises there was writing, but you know, I was thinking it's beginner's class, but if I carry a big basket, I'll bring something home. Um, and one of the exercises was writing a story with no dialogue. And after I did that, I realized I'd been leaning on quotes in my writing to do explanation that would be better done in writing. I was just leaning on them lazily. And I went back and stripped a huge number of quotes and replaced them with writing in range. And I hadn't even realized I was doing that until I got sort of knocked out of my comfort zone. So not only is she sort of a role model to me, but I think she had a really tangible impact on the manuscript because it convinced me to like that I would get something from taking a beginner's course. And I really did. You have someone I need to do a deep dive on now and understand better. You mentioned you were thinking of two people. Who's the second one? Well, the second one actually wasn't from the sports team, but it was this guy that I wrote about at Sports Illustrated um, named Ben Helfgott, who is the only one of two, I think, and the only living person to have survived a concentration camp and then went on to the Olympics. Um, and he was a two-time Olympic weightlifter in Great Britain. And not only did he survive a concentration camp, but he became um, a, a leader of this group called The Boys that was a group of of kids, mostly boys, most of the girls were killed in concentration camps. So because, you know, they were viewed as less useful for labor. So there were some girls in this group, but it was mostly boys. Um, and they were all orphaned in the Holocaust. And they became sort of each other's families and were brought over to Britain and sort of re-socialized and went on to do incredible things. Like one of them won the Nobel Prize. Um, and he became kind of a leader of them as they became each other's family. And he started leading these trips, like to go back to countries uh, with some of these orphans where their whole families had been killed, but to say like, let's, let's build bridges back there. Like the, this generation didn't do it. Like we need to build bridges. And that's an incredibly difficult thing to do. And he, I mean, he lost his whole family doing that. And so as an athlete, as a guy, as a thinker, just everything about him, just, um, I was just in awe of, and it was just an honor to get to write about him. Another person I'm unfamiliar with. So I'm very excited about that. David Epstein, the new book is Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. This is another must-read, one I thoroughly did enjoy. Uh, I know the listeners know that I only have people on whose work I respect and admire, and, and this one I picked up without a doubt is one of the more favorite books I've read in a long time, so I do appreciate your work. Where can the listeners stay connected with you? Where do you want them heading to check you out? I've um, got a website, davidepstein.com, and I just started a newsletter, which you can sign up for there. Um, that's not too frequent and, and pretty short, so it won't, won't burden you too much. Um, and I'm on Twitter at, at David Epstein. Awesome. Well, David, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
you guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode. Hey guys, I wanna tell you about the brand I'm obsessed with right now. And you guys know I'm pretty obsessive about the brands I work with, especially when it comes to athletic apparel. You guys need to check out 10,000. You need to head to 10,000.cc and you guys can enter code WGYT and you're gonna receive 20%, yes, 20% off your entire order. Why do I love 10,000? 10,000 created the only training shorts you'll ever need. They do so by simplifying your options to deliver three premium shorts that perfectly cover all the ways you train. They have one built for versatility, another for durability, and one super lightweight, perfect for one of those runs or whatever else you do for fitness. No matter what you do, they have you covered. Crossfit, running, spin, yoga, lifting, or your weekend adventure, it doesn't matter what you do for fitness. They have a short for every way you train. They make it super simple too to find the right short. Just pick the short that's best for you, your lifestyle, personalize it with your individual needs with a custom liner and inseam options, and start getting after it. Not sure if they have the right short? No need to worry, you guys. Make a return or exchange. They offer free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns on every order. Like I said, 10,000 is my favorite brand right now. I am wearing their apparel all the time when I'm working out. I can't recommend them enough. Head to 10,000.cc, enter code WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order making change transpire. That's the mission behind the most amazing tasting protein bar brand taking the nutrition industry by storm. That brand, they're MCT Co. And they make the most delicious, keto-friendly, all-natural collagen protein bars. If you're obsessed with the quality of food going into your body like I am, then head out and pick up these amazing bars jammed with 10 grams of collagen protein. They only have two to three net carbs, no added sugar, and loaded with high-quality MCT oil for the healthy fats from coconuts. Whether you're busy running the kids around from activity to activity, a professional athlete, or just someone looking for a great-tasting convenience snack, do yourself a favor. Head to mctco.com and use code WGYT for 20% off your order. If you guys enjoyed the smooth sounds of today's episode, then you can thank Brian Lapries, our sound engineer. And if you enjoy the intro song, check out Justin Great, the man behind it. I can't thank you guys enough for listening. Looking forward to you tuning in next time. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you?